today's paper, notice the statement, uh, Christianity did not supersede Judaism, says the United Churches of Christ. And by the way, that United Churches of Christ is not the you know, group that we're familiar with. I think, are you all familiar that uh, there's a very liberal uh, organization uh, consisting of theologians and a number of groups that refer to themselves as United Churches of Christ? And anyways, you see with that article, Christianity did not supersede Judaism. They are making an effort to denounce uh, what has been said in the past concerning Judaism and Christianity. And they are now saying that, uh, that uh, there is nothing in Christianity that keeps the Jews from having a covenant relationship with God uh, under the law of Moses. And that they think that Christianity and Judaism ought to coexist side by side, and we just simply recognize that they are the people of God and that they have a covenant relationship with God, just as the Christians do. And of course, that uh, these people would look forward to the time when the uh, Messiah comes and unites the two, and Jerusalem is rebuilt, and, and everything centers around, around that. Well, you can see how the ill. They have the view or understanding that we've been talking about as we go through the New Testament. And note these things of the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation. There is no way they could ever come to that conclusion. But keep in mind, there is a sense in which that there's more than just liberality with the scriptures that allows them to arrive at that conclusion. The many, many passages in the New Testament that speak of God's wrath in judgment on the nation of Israel and on Judaism and the complete doing away with that covenant and the teaching that, that all Israel is to be found in spiritual Israel or the church, the new Jerusalem, that from their standpoint, they basically have interpreted and used those passages all their lives to refer to the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. And so they miss all of those particular passages you can see somewhat the importance of the subject that we're talking about. That's a very important concept because in, in reality, the uh, church came out of Judaism. And the early converts to Christianity were all out of Judaism. And as we've already noted earlier, that all of the persecution of the church, I mean ALL, in those early years, came from the Jews as they tried to stamp out Christianity and brand Jesus as a blasphemer and those who would follow him as deceived. And Jesus made it very clear that in rejecting him, they had rejected God. And in rejecting the church, they had rejected God's kingdom, God's, God's plan. And this was proclaimed in the early church, and it incurred the hatred of the Jews. And then God came in judgment on fleshly Israel, the Jewish nation, and then out of that decaying, judged, fleshly enterprise that had served its purpose and brought the world to the Messiah, the spiritual kingdom, uh, came the church. Well, now we have gone so far as that those who are actually leading the way before the minds of the public in Christianity are now teaching that God never intended uh, to do away with Judaism and that in reality that Jews and Christians can exist side by side and, and he can have a covenant with us uh, in Christ and a covenant with them uh, under the old covenant as given by the law of Moses. And so again, something real important, you're going to hear a lot more on this, I think, in the future.
various groups, and you're going to find more and more of the groups that say the same thing. Now, keep this in mind also as we do our study. Now, I, had, I made a handout and gave this to you earlier. I know the print is small. I just simply ran off a copy on the overlay, seeing how the believe that Revelation 
and other prophecies refer to such ethical events as the Jesus' death and resurrection and the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Okay, so again, the emphasis on the fact that the majority of scholars, that, that all this may sound like something new, it's new only because the other has been preached over the years. I was taught it, I believed it to the extent that I could understand what the world was going on. Uh, you know, when you don't understand something a lot of times, and somebody offers something that sounds plausible, uh, you know, you think, well, at least he's got something out there. I don't have anything. Now, I was taught it, you come from the same background. But the interesting thing is that all during this time, that although what we're saying sounds like something new, the truth is when we deal with historical scholars and archaeological scholars and people who just simply deal with revelation without a theological axe to grind or anything to prove, that these people are saying and have said that revelation was written before 70 AD, applied to the downfall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the Jewish nation, and it has been misapplied all through this century. It's in a wrong way. Now, another slide I want to put up there to see how that will come out. Notice we mentioned at the very beginning of the uh, lesson on Revelation that it's written specifically to the seven churches in Asia. Alright, notice here is Asia Minor, and look at those seven cities. Laodicea, Philadelphia, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum, Smyrna, Ephesus. Notice how close together they are. And so what we're saying is when you pick up Revelation, there are those seven cities. Seven literal cities in one area. In other words, now that helps us understand why did he write in just these seven, John worked in this particular area. And he was concerned. It's like, why did Paul write to Corinth and not Peter? Paul was the one that established the church at Corinth. Why did Paul write to the Ephesians? Paul was the one that established the church there and was familiar knew the people. So Paul wrote the Ephesians. So it is, whether you're reading 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, or Revelation, John writes to people that he knew and worked with. Peter wrote to those that he was in tune with. Okay? In the same way here, John writes in an area that he is familiar with, and history records John worked in that area, and so he is specifically concerned. And we noted that at this time in history, before 78 AD, those were literal seven churches in that area, and that's the only seven we have record of. And we noted that after 78 AD, then there became many more churches in that particular area. Now, let's see, I believe I had one. We were stuck in this. Concerning the use of the number 666 to represent Nero Caesar, and we read that in Revelation 13 and think, why in the world are they throwing in numbers like that? And we discussed that. And remember we pointed out that thus far, we have pointed out that, that apocalyptic writing was involved from about a century before John was century after. In other words, uh, all for about 200 years' time, that we have this type of literature using the same type of symbolic language that we have in the book of Revelation. And using a number that would break down where, where numericals stood for letters that would spell out names, this was something that was done. And this
this particular time. And so it is writing secret letters with symbolic figures, representations having hidden significance. Okay? Cryptography is the art of writing in secret characters. Cryptographer is one who has mastered the seal of deciphering or decoding the missing letters. We can break it down, and when I break this down to 50, 206, 50, 160, and 200, these form the Aramaic or Hebrew letters for Nero Caesar. Now keep in mind that in Hebrew or Aramaic, there are no vowels. And so spelling it in the way they would, those figures spell out his name. Now, this, when we, when we get the figures there, 50, 206, 50, etc. Those are not off the top of my head. Here, we go to this cut the Bible from the ancient Eastern text, okay? This is translated directly from the Aramaic, not from the Greek manuscripts. This Bible here translated by George Lampson from the Aramaic text. This is the oldest version of the New Testament in existence. It goes back about 150 AD. And so the oldest version of the New Testament in existence Aramaic version, Syrian Eastern text. Number one in the introduction of Revelation puts it before Nero Caesar, and at the time of Nero Caesar, before 78 AD, and also in their notes on the number, they break it down. Now, this was a part of John's writing, but I'm saying the people that received the letter, they broke it down. That referred to Nero Caesar. So the, I'm saying the, the oldest comment that we have from the oldest manuscript, our version, has it broken down in this way and applied to Nero Caesar. Okay, now let's get back to our subject in the 15th chapter. Does anybody still copy in there? Did you want me to leave that there for a little bit? Yeah. Okay, I'll leave it there. And, and as soon as you finish, just raise your hand and I'll have you flip, flip the lights back on down the center. Okay, let's get into the 15th chapter. And what we've been doing is not necessarily making an effort to understand every single solitary symbol that's there. And first of all, if we did that, we'd get a lot of speculation. What we are noting is that this type of writing was in vogue or used at the time that John wrote Revelation. So although it appears as something strange to us, it was not to these people. Because for about a hundred years, this kind of writing had been something that had been used, and we noted that there was a reason for it. That if you are a persecuted people, just like we know them today, our country tries to write things in codes and in terms when they're dealing with our representatives in Moscow, that the people in Russia can understand. And when they deal with the people in their industry, embassy in this country, they deal in codes and symbols that they hope that we can understand. And each side has people trying to break down the code. Well, in the same way, this has happened all through the centuries. John is purposely putting this in symbolic language. I shouldn't say John. John is doing what, what he's been told to do. The Lord is purposely giving John 
this information in a symbolic way. And John is writing it down. And it's been written at a time, though, when these terms were used in an understandable way. And like one thing we've noted in Revelation, and we should get to a place where we note it today. And that is that many of these symbols are the same symbols that are used with the destruction of Babylon, destruction of Edom, and Egypt in the Old Testament. Other cities, other countries, same type of symbolism is used. It's also, we've been noting through here, the same type of symbolism that we have in Matthew 24 when referring to, by Jesus to the destruction of Jerusalem. And so we have been noting those things as we go. And we've also noted that we're speaking of an event that is soon to take place, and we can see that this event is a judgment event to take place on the persecuting people, the people that are persecuting the people of God. And we also see in here that this beast is turned not is not only going to destroy the persecutors of the people of God, the beast also persecutes the Christians. And so we find actual a literal fulfillment in that the Jews, on the one hand, Rome would go to war against Israel and destroy Jerusalem, but before this happened, Nero uh, declared open season on Christians. And Christians were suffering a lot of persecution, and many of them going to the death at this particular time. All right, now let's start in the 15th chapter. Okay, uh, Sean? Okay, thanks, Sean. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with seven last plagues, last because them with, with them God's wrath is complete. And I saw a book like a sea of glass mixed with fire, standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held hearts given them by God, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of the God, the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, even of the ages, who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name. For you alone are holy. Not just you, but you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Right, notice what he says. The things that we can actually see through the symbolic language. God has passed judgment. God's people are victorious. As a result of God's people being victorious, what does John see? When you're happy, you sing. And so he sees a vision of people singing, shouting for joy. God's people are victorious. Then he sees the end result of this is that God will be recognized as alone holy. Remember that Rome would actually set their emperors, I should say the emperors set themselves up, as something to be worshipped. And idols were worshipped. But the time was coming when God alone would stand as holy. All nations will come and worship before you. Well, we noted that after the downfall of Israel, Nero is going to his, to his Waterloo also. And out of all of this, will come the church or Christianity to spread throughout and take the message throughout the entire world. Idolatry will be defeated. Emperor worship will be defeated. By the time we hit the fourth century, Christianity is official religion of the Roman Empire. Now notice another parallel with something that happened in the Old Testament. In this situation, we have a judgment. God 
victorious. And then in the vision, he sees them grab their harps and, and to strum the harps and sing a new song of Moses and the Lamb. Notice now, Moses and the Lamb. Let's strike a parallel with you, at least what I think is a, a good point on this. And sure, we may be following him once. If you get your Bible, Wallace is with Get both. He makes a very good point. I thought on this, what happened when Moses delivered the children of Israel from the land of Egypt and God passed judgment on Egypt and they crossed over? Do you remember the first thing that happened? Sing a song. Sing a song. Remember Miriam? Miriam, they got their hearts out, their instruments, and Miriam led them and sang a song. God was victorious over Pharaoh and his army. Okay, the first angel 
swords broke out on people that had the worship of the mark of the beast. And then the second angel, and notice how the sea turned into blood. And then the third angel, the rivers now turned into blood. All right, now with the boils and the sores and the turning into blood, does that remind us of anything? In other words, what John is seeing a symbol of, and God poured out his plagues on his ungodly city, the Jew man would read that and right away he would identify that with coming out of Egypt and how God literally poured out those plagues on Egypt and chose to stain for them. And so John is again seeing something that is part of his thinking and part of his own background and part of his heritage of writing to the Jews and he's using that so they would perfectly identify this with God's judgment back then. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you are just in your judgments. You who are and who were the Holy One, because you are so just, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood and drink as they deserve. All right, let's hold it right there. The judgment takes place. And he said, you are just in these judgments. Why? Because they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets. Okay, Turn, hold your place here and flip over to 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 8. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 8. Right there. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in a blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God, do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Okay. Notice in Thessalonians, Speaking of this judgment situation, saying, when you do this, God, you are just. Why are you just? Because he is passing judgment on those people that are making life miserable for the Thessalonians that he's writing to. Well, who is making life miserable for them? Let's turn over to 1 Thessalonians. We'll find out. Same people. Same people. Just a little bit before this. 1 Thessalonians. Second chapter. And beginning with verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own country. The same things these churches suffered from the Jews. What about the Jews? They killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displeased God, are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always keep up their sins to deliver the wrath of God who's come on them at the last. Now, can you see the parallel between 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and Revelation? Each time you have this statement, God is passing judgment on somebody. The person is the Jews who have been persecuting God's people, even to the point of putting them to death. And so the statement, God, you are just in your judgment. Jerusalem deserves to follow. Like Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Therefore, 
persecuted and put to death the apostles. And so God's wrath is going to come on them. And the writer's call says in Thessalonians, it's just. Over here in Revelation, after these judgments, using figurative type things from the Old Testament, going back to the time of Moses in Egypt, there is the saying that you're just in these judgments. Who are we talking about? Who's he judging? They have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. All right, now hold your place there still. And let's flip right up here to the one we've gone back to a number of times in uh, Matthew 23. Matthew 23, and begin with verse 29. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets, decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, if we had lived in the days of the forefathers, we would not have taken part in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. You testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your fathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I'm sending you prophets, wise men, teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. So upon you will come all of the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth. All this will come on this generation, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets. Back over here to Revelation. 16th chapter, verse 5. You are just in these judgments. You who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged, they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true are your judgments. All right, now, let me see if I can find this real quick here. Uh, yeah, notice here where he says, I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Hold your place there, flip back to the sixth chapter, and look here at the beginning with ninth, the ninth verse. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been completed. Okay, so now, after this judgment and the statement, they receive what they deserve. Why? Because they killed the prophets. Then we go back to the altar. And I heard the altar respond. Well, the last time we read about the altar, we had the souls of those who had been put to death because of their testimony of Jesus. And they're saying, Lord, when are you going to take vengeance on our blood? He says, wait a little longer. There's going to be a few more of you die, but then I'm going to take vengeance. And so now, after this judgment, the altar responds and says, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Okay, the 
fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun. The sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared with intense heat. They cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent for it by him. It's interesting. Josephus, in his work, when it speaks of cursing God and blaspheming and all that it's going to mention in here, Josephus does a very good job in describing the destruction of Jerusalem and what went on in the city, the cursing, the blaspheming, the fighting, the murder. In fact, uh, Sherwood brought out to us earlier that uh, Josephus even records that the Jewish zealots actually kill, in Josephus' words, now whether he's exactly right or not, we at least know that there's a lot of killing done, he says that the Jews killed more of their fellow Jews than the Romans actually did. Within, this, within the city itself. In other words, that they were not going to repent. And those Jews that were in the city and finally came to the conclusion that it was a losing cause, we may as well surrender, the zealots took their life. They would not repent. They were not going to turn. And so he pictures the wrath being poured out, the torment, but rather than repent, they turn in hatred. They refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out the land of the great river of Euphrates. Its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Then I saw their evil spirits that looked like frogs. Okay, when it speaks of the bowl of the great river of Euphrates, its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. So the water, he pictures the vision. Water being dried up, prepare the way. Okay, take your mind back. The destruction of Babylon. The prophecy of Isaiah, 44th chapter. And remember how God said that he was going to prepare the way for Cyrus. He would dry up. Thus saith to the deep, be dry. And the Euphrates, Cyrus, tampered with the head of the Euphrates River. The water was dried up. And on that dry riverbed, the historians record how that Cyrus brought his army down, the gates were left open like God said, and they just simply walked in to over Babylon. And so alluding to something again in their, their experience, all he's saying here is that God is going to open the way. In other words, there's no hope for Israel. God is against them. All the obstacles are going to be removed by God. God is providentially against Israel. He goes back to something that they're very familiar with in their history. And that is that God had prophesied, prophesied the drying up of the deep, the Euphrates River, and that that army would come in on a dry riverbed and just simply walk in and take over the city. And so, again, something in their past that they could identify with, part of their experience, simply saying to these people, here, God's going to remove the obstacles. No hope for Israel. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. By the way, again, Frogs down through the centuries at this time and even before uh, were symbolic of magic, magical arts. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits and demons performing miraculous signs. They go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Matthew 24, verse 11. Remember one of the things that Jesus said would happen before that day? The false miracles that would take place. Many people would come and say they were the Christ, the Messiah, and miraculous things would be done, even trying to deceive the elect. Hold your place here real quick and, and flip over here to uh, Matthew 24. Matthew 
they shamefully exposed that their experience was that the temple guard was on guard and he went to sleep. When the man came around checking, and he was asleep, they literally took his clothes off, cut them off, and he was sent out in his indignation and his shame among the people. And so John alludes, again, we read that, we say, what really is he talking about? They identified with this perfectly, but what is this also an evidence of? The temple is still standing. You see, if this thing's written in 96 AD, the temple has been destroyed for 26 years. And this fact that, that clothes are taken off people and they're sent out naked if they're caught sleeping is not even part of the thinking of the whole younger generation at this time. But again, another one of the internal evidences that the temple itself was still standing. I've come like a thief, but notice now, he's coming like a thief only to certain people, right? He's telling others to be awake and sober. What would you place there? And flip back over here to First uh, Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 5. Brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman. They will not escape. But others now, but you brothers are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light, sons of the day. We do not belong to the night and the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. Then he goes on down to verse 9, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation. How were they going to receive salvation? By being alert and awake, and when the Roman armies began to gather around the city, those alert, awake believers, if you walk around the house now, Get out of there. If you're out in the field, don't come back. Run to the hills. But what about those who didn't believe the Lord? And those that just simply watched the armies in Congress, then destruction would come on them like a thief in the night. They weren't prepared. And therefore, the armies would, would encompass them, they would stay in the city, and they would go to their downfall. And so again, this business of the Lord coming like a thief in the night, we know that we need to read the whole passage. He came to it like a thief in the night to those who were not alert. To those who were alert to his instructions, they escape of being alert. Now when you come to the end of the world, if it ends, in, in some way when you come back, what does it matter whether you're asleep or awake? What does it matter whether you're on the house or in the house? <laughs> or out in the field or why flee to the mountains? And it doesn't matter whether you're asleep or awake. In fact, if the Lord is literally coming, it seems to me about half the world's going to be asleep and half of them awake. Unless he's telling the people on the dark side to be awake at that time. But that's not his point. They had information. And this judgment that he's talking about is something that they could escape by being alert and awake. So he says, don't be like the guy that goes to sleep on watch duty and is put to shame. But you be alert and awake. And again, the same illustration over in 1 Thessalonians 5. Like a thief in the night to the unbeliever, but man to the believer who knew and had light. That he would see all that take place and he would escape. Now, they gathered the kings together in the place that Hebrews called Armageddon. I can see our time is 
is gone. Tell you what, I, uh, I was going to spend a little time on this because of the way that it's used. Uh, let's pause there. And next week, I'll have an overlay with uh, this uh, uh, Armageddon and where the word comes from and how it was used and the way it's used in this particular area. But I think it made a, a good place to pause. And you want to go to some dictionaries? Going out of the end, uh, Bible dictionaries, and look up that word. You might find something very interesting. And then we'll get back, and I'll have the definition from several places uh, flipped up on the overlay, and we'll start there. And again, the reason I'm doing it that way, this, this battle of Armageddon is talked about so much and hit in so many ways that we're already 10 minutes over, and I don't want to give it a quick two minute shot. I'd rather just go ahead and and we'll start and spend some time on it at the start. And also, any articles that you've read and want to 